Welcome to this ePulmonology Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker. I'm the managing editor of ePulmonology Review. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Hassoun, professor of medicine and director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And we're here to discuss how some of the information in Dr. Hassoun's recent newsletter issue on the classification and diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension can translate into clinical practice. ePulmonology Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Actelian Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated and Synovian Pharmaceuticals. Learning objectives for this audio program include explain the complexity of pulmonary hypertension and the importance of a rigorous diagnostic workup, and describe the basic diagnostic algorithm to accurately classify the type of pulmonary hypertension encountered in a specific patient. Dr. Hassoun has indicated that he has no financial interests or relationships with any commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of his presentation. He's also indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products. Dr. Hassoun, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. In your newsletter issue, doctor, you presented some of the recent information on classifying patients with pulmonary hypertension, a basic algorithm for diagnostic workup, and the types of therapies currently available. Our focus today is to see how some of this information can impact clinical decision-making. So start us out, if you would please, Dr. Hassoun, with a patient scenario. This was a 63-year-old gentleman who presented for evaluation of pulmonary hypertension. He was essentially in a good state of health until about 2000 when he started experiencing severe exertional dyspnea. At the time, he was overweight, so a sleep study was obtained, and this revealed mild sleep apnea with mild desaturation. His apnea hypopnea index was about 10 per hour, so he was started on BiPAP. Since 2000, the patient has lost about 100 pounds intentionally and started exercising on a treadmill for about 30 minutes, four days a week. His past medical history is really unremarkable otherwise, aside from systemic hypertension. He has, in particular, no history of coronary artery disease, no asthma or COPD. He smoked about 15 to 20 pack years, but has not smoked since 1988. Of note, he lived for about 30 years at an altitude of 8,200 feet in Colorado, but then moved to Maryland three years ago. As mentioned, he was able to exercise several times a week. He denies significant exertional dyspnea. However, he's short of breath walking up a hill. He denies any chest pain, cough, hemoptysis, pedal edema, orthopnea, or PND, and has no history of syncope. On physical examination, his vital signs were fairly unremarkable. His oxygen saturation was a little bit low at 94% on room air. The chest was clear. Cardiac examination revealed a loud second pulmonic sound and a 2 over 6 systolic murmur best heard in the left lower sternal border. Abdomen was benign. Extremities were free of pedal edema, clubbing, or cyanosis. How would you summarize this patient for us, doctor? So in summary, we are dealing with a 63-year-old gentleman with a history of sleep apnea and obesity in the past with some functional limitation when walking uphill. Also of note is that his oxygen saturation on room air was only 94%. 
So in evaluating this patient for pulmonary hypertension, what are your thoughts after this first visit? Several thoughts went through my mind. First, does this patient have pulmonary hypertension, explaining his symptoms? And if yes, what group could this be? He clearly has symptoms such as dyspnea climbing up the hill and signs such as a loud P2 and a systolic murmur of tricuspid regurgitation that do suggest pulmonary hypertension. The history of systemic hypertension would be significant, for instance, for group 2 disease, as this can cause diastolic dysfunction and secondary pulmonary hypertension. The history of sleep apnea, on the other hand, is also of concern for group 3 pulmonary hypertension. However, he was quite diligent and lost about 100 pounds. A repeat polysomnogram is in order. There is nothing in his history to suggest uh, connective tissue disease, HIV, or other associated diseases. He lived at high altitude but has been living in the Baltimore area for over three years. Therefore, high altitude pulmonary hypertension related to chronic hypoxia would be very unlikely. So your diagnostic workup, what would be your next step? So our algorithm for diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension is pretty straightforward. We start with baseline laboratory data, chest imaging, a ventilation perfusion scan, the latter really to rule out thrombolic disease. We typically obtain a six-minute walk test in the in-clinic to evaluate the patient's functional status. Among the laboratory data, we get a serum anti-probrain natriuretic peptide or ProBNP. A screening echocardiogram is the necessary tool, a screening test for any evaluation of pulmonary hypertension. And then a repeat sleep study, in this case, to ascertain that his sleep apnea syndrome is indeed under good control. And the results of these initial tests? So the chest film and chest CT scan revealed very large pulmonary arteries bilaterally. The parenchyma, however, was clear. There was no lesion or mass. An echocardiogram revealed a right ventricular systolic pressure of about 55 millimeters of mercury, so elevated. There was a moderately dilated right ventricle and dilation of the right pulmonary artery, suggesting indeed the presence of pulmonary hypertension. A ventilation perfusion scan was completely unremarkable with a normal lung perfusion. A repeat polysomnogram revealed an apnea hypopnea index less than 5 per hour, which is completely normal. So because of the findings of his echocardiogram, the very large pulmonary arteries on chest CT scan, and no obvious disease to explain these findings, a right heart catheterization would have to be obtained to rule out pulmonary hypertension. So a right heart catheterization. The results of that procedure, how did they inform your diagnosis? There was severe elevation in mean PA pressure, pulmonary arterial pressure, to 70 millimeters of mercury, above the cutoff of 25 millimeters of mercury considered normal. And this is close to systemic level pressure. The pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was, however, normal, less than 15 millimeters of mercury. So the numbers are consistent with precapillary pulmonary arterial hypertension. Pulmonary vascular resistance was severely elevated at 12 wood units. Normal is less than 3 wood units. However, the cardiac index was preserved at 2.44 liters per minute per meter square. 
based on these values and the clinical history, this patient does have severe idiopathic pulmonary hypertension or IPAH with hemodynamics consistent with this syndrome. His preserved functional status and performance, remember that he exercises on a daily basis, can only be explained by the fact that he has a fairly preserved right ventricular function, a near normal cardiac index in the face of a very severely increased pulmonary vascular load. So the results of the right heart catheterization allowed you to make an evidence-based diagnosis of severe idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. What therapy did you recommend? Although his symptoms were mild, he had functional class 2 symptoms. He was started at the time, and this was in 2003, on monotherapy with sildenafil, a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. This drug belongs to one of the two classes of oral agents available at the time. He was advised to continue using his CPAP on a nightly basis, mainly to prevent obstructive sleep apnea, to complicate the picture and worsen his already severe pulmonary hypertension. He was also advised to exercise on a regular basis, and this is recommended now routinely for patients with pulmonary hypertension, as exercise, like in any form of cardiovascular disease, is quite helpful for these patients and is not detrimental. What happened with this patient, doctor? What was the final result of your diagnosis and care? So he remained in functional class 1 or 2 on various examinations on sildenafil therapy for about 15 years, which is quite remarkable considering his initial severe hemodynamics. He was followed every four to six months on a routine basis and did not require a single hospitalization for complication of pulmonary hypertension, which in my experience is reflective of his excellent right ventricular function. However, because of persistent severe elevation on a recent repeat right heart catheterization, Addition of an endothelian receptor antagonist agent would now be recommended in light of the results of the recent ambition trial with upfront combination therapy with Nadelafil and Abrisentin, the trial I mentioned previously in my newsletter. He's currently awaiting clearance from his health insurance before instituting Abrisentin therapy. Combination therapy will clearly increase health costs for this patient and for other patients on combination therapy. However, as also mentioned in the newsletter, recent studies suggest that the increased cost is offset by the beneficial effect of these drugs on health and mainly related to decreasing the rate of hospitalization of these patients with pulmonary hypertension. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Paul Hassoun from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. This is Bob Busker, Managing Editor of ePulmonology Review. ePulmonology Review is a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. Each issue reviews the current literature in areas of importance to clinicians treating patients with pulmonary conditions. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion like the one you're listening to now is available to help translate that new clinical information into practice. These podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts. A subscription to ePulmonology Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. 
For more information on this educational activity, to subscribe and receive ePulmonology Review without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.epulmonologyreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this ePulmonology Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. We've been speaking with Dr. Paul Hassoun from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine about how the newer information about the classification and diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension reviewed in his newsletter issue can translate into improved clinical practice. So let's continue in that vein, Dr. Hassoun, and if you would please, bring us another patient scenario. So a 67-year-old woman with Raynaud's phenomenon since age 20 and newly diagnosed Crest syndrome was referred for evaluation of pulmonary hypertension by her rheumatologist. She had also been evaluated in a general pulmonary clinic for possible interstitial lung disease. She had been complaining of breathing difficulty for the past two years, which became significantly worse six months before I examined her. She was eventually started three months ago on supplemental oxygen because of significant hypoxemia. Her past medical history is remarkable for diabetes, sleep apnea for the past five years, for which she has been on CPAP at night at a pressure of 10 centimeters of water pressure, although she admits somewhat poor compliance with that therapy. She had a myocardial infarction at age 40, for which she had a stent placed in the right coronary artery. From a respiratory standpoint, she cannot walk more than 15 to 20 feet without being completely out of breath. She denies any chest pain. However, she has frequent swelling of the legs and has been complaining of increased abdominal girth and a feeling of bloating and discomfort. She denies any lightheadedness or syncope. On physical examination, she's on oxygen and has great difficulty moving to the examining table. Blood pressure is 154 over 79, a bit elevated. Pulse oximetry is 91% on 4 liters of oxygen. Other vital signs were normal. Juggler venous pressure is elevated to the angle of the jaw. Chest auscultation reveals minimal crackles at the bases bilaterally. Heart examination reveals an increased second pulmonic sound without appreciable rub, gallop, or murmur. Abdomen is distended. It is difficult to appreciate the presence of ascites. Extremities reveal 2-plus pedal edema up to the level of the knee. The skin is remarkable for telangiectasias over the face. In summary, we're dealing with a 67-year-old woman with a history of long-standing Raynaud's phenomenon and recently diagnosed Crest syndrome. She's WHO functional class 3 at this time. Help us unpack that presentation, doctor. What are your thoughts about this patient? Well, she most likely has some form of pulmonary hypertension complicating her connective tissue disease, her scleroderma. But her presentation is rather complex. First, I cannot exclude a component of interstitial lung disease, which would put her in group three if it were severe. I'm also intrigued by her profound hypoxemia and what might be causing it, whether it is interstitial lung disease, congestive heart failure, or something else. On physical examination, she appears to have a clear element of right ventricular failure with elevated jugular venous pressure and marked pedal edema. With her history of cardiac disease, could she have group 2 disease related to left ventricular dysfunction? What tests would you order before making your diagnosis? 
Well, I would obtain the routine test that we always obtain for the diagnosis of pH, including general blood work, a chest CT to assess the degree of interstitial lung disease. A ventilation scan is part of the diagnostic algorithm. In her case, I would also obtain imaging of the kidneys and brain to assess for a possible shunt. Pulmonary function tests are in order to assess for any restrictive pattern which would be consistent with the diagnosis of interstitial lung disease. The six-minute walk test is important to assess her functional limitation and to check her oxygen needs with ambulation. An echocardiogram, a routine screening test, is the ideal initial screening test for a pH, whatever the pH group might be. On the echocardiogram, I would pay special attention to the left side as well as the right side. To the left side because of her history of coronary artery disease and the possibility that she may have left ventricular dysfunction. And the results of those tests? So the blood test revealed that the ANA, antinuclear antibody, was positive greater than 1 over 640 with an anti-centromere pattern. The anti-SCL70 was negative, anti-Rho was negative, and the serum anti-ProBNP was quite elevated at 1,600 picogram per ml. A chest x-ray showed mild increased interstitial markings at both bases. The heart was normal in size. A chest CT scan revealed very mild interstitial lung disease, mainly in the subpleural areas consistent with the usual interstitial pneumonitis pattern bilaterally, and this was considered very mild. She underwent a six-minute walk test but could only walk 250 feet, which is 20% of predicted for her. This necessitated, however, 10 liters of oxygen by nasal cannula because of significant desaturation. Her saturation at rest was 96%, 86% at peak exercise. However, she recovered to 92% at the end of the walk. An echocardiogram revealed a normal left ventricular size and function. The ejection fraction was 60 to 65%, which is normal. The right ventricle was, however, severely dilated with decreased RV systolic function as assessed by a TAPC value of 1.7 centimeter. The right ventricular systolic pressure was 65 millimeters of mercury. The left atrium was normal in size and the right atrium was moderately dilated. A pulmonary ventilation perfusion scan was read as low probability for pulmonary embolism. There was also presence of a right-to-left shunt. Indeed, she had mild radio tracer activity in the brain and bilaterally in the kidneys. Pulmonary function tests showed an FEV1 of 76% of predicted, a forced vital capacity of 84% of predicted, a total lung capacity of 96% of predicted. So most of these values are within normal limits. The DLCO, however, was 8.6, severely reduced at 38% of predicted, indicative of a severe pulmonary vascular disorder. You saw this patient because you were asked by her rheumatologist to evaluate her for pulmonary hypertension. Based on these test results, do you believe she has pulmonary hypertension? It is very clear that this lady has scleroderma of the limited form based on her serology with a positive ANA and an anti-centromere pattern. Her chest CT scan and PFTs suggest some very mild interstitial lung disease, but not enough to account for any form of pulmonary hypertension. 
The pulmonary function tests, as I mentioned, were fairly preserved. Her echocardiogram suggests severe pulmonary hypertension with a dilated right ventricle. The left heart, however, appears normal with a normal left ventricular ejection fraction. So left heart disease is quite unlikely to account for any pulmonary hypertension. The ventilation perfusion scan excludes a thromboembolic disease as the perfusion was normal. However, it does suggest a shunt effect, which is most likely intracardiac. In this case, a bubble study would have been very helpful to assess this possibility. The six-minute walk test suggests very severe functional impairment and significant need for supplemental oxygen. Remember, she required 10 liters of oxygen for her six-minute walk test. Her initial diagnostic workup is now pretty much complete. She will need to be scheduled for a right heart catheterization to determine the degree of her pulmonary hypertension and rule out pulmonary venous hypertension, which is still a possibility considering her history of cardiac disease and previous myocardial infarction. So would your next step be to go directly to that right heart catheterization? Not really. At this time, I'm very concerned about her right ventricular failure, fluid overload, and her extremely limited functional status, along with the profound hypoxemia. So before proceeding with any further testing, it is really urgent to alleviate her symptoms and improve her hemodynamics. For a patient like this, aggressive diuresis with furosemides or some other diuretics is indicated at this time. So once she has reached close to a euvolemic state, right heart catheterization is indicated to assess her pressures, her right ventricular function, and rule out any possibility of left ventricular dysfunction, which is quite possible with her history. So she was successfully diuresed and is now ready for right heart catheterization. So the catheterization was performed. What were the results? The results were quite consistent with severe precapillary pulmonary hypertension, or PAH, with a mean pulmonary arterial pressure of 60 millimeters of mercury, evidence of rather severe right ventricular dysfunction with an elevated right atrial pressure of 12 millimeters of mercury and a profoundly decreased cardiac index of 1.7 liters per minute per meter square with a calculated pulmonary vascular resistance of 14 wood units. There was no left ventricular dysfunction as her pulmonary capillary wet pressure was 10 millimeters of mercury, so less than the cutoff of 15 millimeters of mercury. Considering her diagnosis of limited scleroderma, the absence of left ventricular dysfunction, limited interstitial lung disease by CAT scan, with normal lung volumes on PFTs, this lady suffers from scleroderma-associated PAH, which is a group 1 pulmonary hypertension. So all in all, what was the final result with this patient, doctor? So shortly after the right heart catheterization, she was enrolled in a clinical trial, the ATPAS ATPAHSS, with upfront combination therapy with ambrisentin and tadalafil, similar to the ambition trial that I mentioned in the newsletter. However, this trial was focused on scleroderma-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. Within six months of therapy, this was an open-label trial, she was improved with functional class 2 symptoms. Her hypoxemia improved to the point that she no longer required supplemental oxygen. 
three years later, she remains in functional class two and with adequate oxygenation on room air. Thank you, Dr. Hassoun, for bringing us today's cases and discussion. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing the key points of what we've talked about today as they relate to our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, explain the complexity of pulmonary hypertension and the importance of a rigorous diagnostic workup. Both cases presented the clinical elements that might have oriented the clinician toward different diagnoses. As illustrated in the first case, the patient had lived at high altitude and could have developed high altitude increased pulmonary vascular resistance. He also had a diagnosis of hypertension, which could have given him diastolic dysfunction, which would have placed him in group 2 disease. He also had a diagnosis of sleep apnea, like the second patient. The second patient had a history of coronary artery disease and myocardial infarction, so she could have had some form of left ventricular dysfunction causing pulmonary hypertension. She also had scleroderma that can be complicated by interstitial lung disease, and indeed she had some mild interstitial lung disease. If it had been severe, that could have caused pulmonary hypertension, and she would have been classified as group 3 pulmonary hypertension. So when patients present, the initial visit is really a clue-searching type of effort where you try to find in the past medical history and in the current presentation signals that orient you toward a specific diagnosis or a specific group of pulmonary hypertension. Also, as shown here, a complete diagnostic workup is essential prior to initiation of any therapy. And our second learning objective. Describe the basic diagnostic algorithm to accurately classify the type of pulmonary hypertension. We follow a very specific diagnostic algorithm for any patient who is being evaluated for pulmonary hypertension. And the diagnostic algorithm includes obtaining blood tests for routine CBC, a metabolic panel, serum anti ProBNP, TSH, ANA, and we also obtain imaging of the chest, a plain chest film, but also a CAT scan of the chest with contrast, obtain a ventilation perfusion scan, a six-minute walk test, and extremely important, a screening echocardiogram. As indicated in these two cases, right heart catheterization is the most important terminal tool in the diagnostic workup. It allows estimation of the degree of pulmonary hypertension the function of the right ventricle, and exclusion of postcapillary forms such as left ventricular dysfunction. Also, as shown here, a complete diagnostic workup is essential prior to initiation of any therapy. Dr. Paul Hassoun, Director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this ePulmonology Review podcast. Thank you very much, Bob. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.epulmonologyreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the ePulmonology Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review, certified for CME and CE credit, and emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with pulmonary conditions. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. 
The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCMA to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive ePulmonology Review via email, please go to our website, www.epulmonologyreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. ePulmonology Review is supported by educational grants from Mctellian Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated and Synovian Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for listening.